Welcome to Hot Breath Comedy Fam. On Monday, May 13th, I am teaching a clean comedy workshop. The last four I have taught sold out very quickly, so if you wanna learn about clean comedy, the business side, where the line is, how to write clean comedy, go to the link in the description of this episode, and we'll see you there. Now, the longer I, I do comedy, the more I'm starting to see that I think jealousy is just a part of comedy. And Colin goes, what's your last name? I go, Soder. He goes, ugh, change it. And then he walked away. <laughs> finishing, a, finishing your closing bit while half the room is leaving is one of the most humbling experiences anyone can go through. When you're like, and then I say to him, because you have like that line locked up, you know? Right. Like, I go over there and I look at him and I say, that's not a parachute. And people are just walking out and you're like, thank you, everyone. Good night. Hot breath. All right. Hot breath of verse. Welcome back to the Hot Breath Podcast. This is the show where you learn comedy from the pros. This is our live Q&A series. If you're watching this on YouTube or listening to the podcast later, go join our Facebook group. It's free. There's comics from around the world in there connecting and engaging and getting access to some of the top comedy minds in the world. And without any exception... Our guest definitely ranks on that. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, hot brethren and sister, and welcome to the hot breath of verse, Mr. Dan Soder, ladies and gentlemen. Dan Soder. Hey, what's up? Hello, digital people. Hello, <laughs> not being able to hear applause. It's creepy as hell. There was a sound effect, if that makes you feel any better. <sighs> that makes me feel much better. I didn't hear it, so I didn't get the fake uh, the fake adulation. <laughs> So, I didn't get that, the, the fake bump, the fake spike in adrenaline. Oh, but you will get the hot breath bump. I will say after Mark Norman did his first hot breath episode a few years ago, his career just took off. So I think this may be your big break, Dan. <laughs> I knew this was the fuel in Norman's tank. I fucking knew it. At first I was like, is it because he writes such great jokes and he's a great comic? I'm like, nope, he's got that hot breath. He got that hot breath rub. <laughs> So what we can do, actually, because I was going to start with um, with the quarantine situation and all this, but we were talking off air. We'll just jump into what we were talking about with the comedy show that we just saw yeah. happen in New York and your jealousy, I think you said. You're feeling very jealous. Oh, yeah, dude, immediate, immediately jealous. I, um, I saw um, – well, actually, I woke up. I think it was yesterday, and my girlfriend was on Instagram, and she was like, oh, did you see they did a, that Michael Che did a comedy show? And I was like, yeah, I heard he was going to do that. And then I saw pictures and immediately was like, man, a it's it's so funny, like the insecurity of a comedian or just my insecurities. I can't speak for everyone. But immediately I was like, oh, I want to do stand up right now. And then number two, I was like, oh, man, I didn't get booked on that show. And right. then you're immediately like, yeah, dude, Chase, like he did like a show in the back of a flatbed in uh, Long Island City. And the lineup was awesome. It was Petey. Uh, Rosebud Baker, Nimesh, there was a lot of uh, fun comics on that. And then Big J and Joe DeRosa uh, went up with Che and like hung out and made and like, you know, talk shit. And that was also why I was jealous. I was like, man, that would be so fun just to be. Honestly, I don't know if I'm jealous for the stage time or if I'm jealous just to be around people making other people laugh. Yeah. I think that's something that I, I really fucking miss. That's interesting, even hearing someone like 15 years in with you, you just released a HBO special, have done so many awesome things, and yet you're still in this, you still have that impulse that I think every comic has, to where we're like, oh, I didn't get booked on that? 
Yeah, dude. Where's that's a conspiracy. every list. <laughs> yeah, every list, every show, everything. I think uh, I'm I'm interested to see like. You know, I've heard before in comedy that like at 10 years, you kind of figure out what you're doing at 15 years. You kind of hone it more at 20. You get to that next level or whatever. And I was like, when is it where you don't care if you're not on a lineup? That's good. <laughs> like, When is it? What year is it where you're like, they're like coming up? It's the new lineup at Clusterfest, which I didn't even want to do. And I was like, man, I think they didn't ask me. Exactly. I, I, it doesn't even have to be a good thing. It can be a shitty thing where they're like, "We're doing barnyard comedy just for horses," and you're like, "Man, why didn't why didn't they book me?" <laughs> if it has a did, cool flyer, there's automatic jealousy, regardless of the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think and now the longer I, I do comedy, the more I'm starting to see that I think jealousy is just a part of comedy. I think mm. it's like not necessarily in just a negative way. I think uh, I don't know. I always get jealous when I see people with bits that I'm like, man, I wish I would have thought of that. I think that's, I don't think that goes away. I hope it doesn't go away or else you're going to, I'm going to be a sociopath <laughs> just not caring about jokes. But yeah, I think jealousy is a part of stand up, And I think I, I would have liked to have known that earlier on. It, it, have you found any ways to at least kind of alleviate some jealousy over more minute things as opposed to like maybe a bigger thing? No, I, I've noticed with jealousy, it's always um, jealousy or negativity is most of the time uh, just something that you have a problem with yourself. Mm. So like when I'm jealous about that kind of stuff, I'm like, well, maybe I should go work harder. Maybe I should just shut up and go write more or go do more sets or try to have better sets or, you know, I, that's always the way I've been where I've just kind of like anytime I've gotten. And, and by the way, it doesn't always come from like a very. Like, oh, I'm going to be better. <clears throat> Sometimes it comes straight up from a spiteful, like, well, I'm going to go do sets. Let's see how you guys like me in five years. When I say no, I won't be on that show. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, and then the next week they're like, hey, do you want to do my show? And you're like, oh, I would love to. I would love to do the show. You're like, yeah, yeah. I'll check my calendar, but we'll we'll see. Uh, well, I can I had, pencil in. I had, yeah, I had a lot of that coming up in New York where like I wouldn't, I wouldn't get put on the cool shows and I would be like, well, fuck you. Then I'm going to go do my own thing. And then they'd be like, do you want to do the show? And I'd be like, I, I would, that would be great. <laughs> that would be absolutely lovely. And then you're like, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, man. And I think, uh, I'm excited to be around comedians again. Yeah. I'm excited to be, around, I'm excited about it, to be around comedy again. I'm getting excited. What kind of tips do you have for comics Going through the current quarantine, because a big thing, a topic that's come up in our community has been like, oh, I'm, when, do, when do we get back on stage? I'm starting to like fiend for it or whatever. But it's like, what, what advice do you have for comics on like how they can maximize their time they have away from the stage to propel their career so when the stage comes back, like they're hitting the ground running? I don't know, man, because I, I, I've thought about it a lot, uh, even a conversation I had with my mom where she was like, if this would have happened to you 10 years ago, you'd have to move back to Denver. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I would absolutely have to move back. I'm shit. If this happened in 2013 or 2014, I would have had to move back to Denver. So th there's this real thing of <clears throat> I kind of feel for comics coming up right now because the fragility of it, it was just exposed where it's just completely taken away. And, and there probably were a lot of comedians that were making progress, not only professionally, but personally in comedy. Like th there's there's moments and it's 
you know, I remember when I was first starting, and I, I would watch like Last Comic Standing or Tough Crowd and listen to Opie and Anthony. And I always remember the, the advice was always the same. It was like, get on stage as much as you can. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I always thought it was like, I thought that advice was kind of boring. But now I've said this before, but I mean it. I think it's the same as when someone is like, how do I lose weight? And they're like, diet and exercise. And you're like, no, 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 no. Like, how do I really lose weight? And they're like, diet and exercise. It's just a commitment. And the thing about stand-up is I don't – I can't tell you when I've turned corners because it's just doing stand-up every night. All of a sudden on Monday you are a way better comedian than you were last Wednesday. And you don't know which set it was that made you realize like, oh, yeah, if I do this – that works or I can I can say this and get away with it and it's funny I can't say that and get away with it so my best advice for comedians going through this right now because I hope we're at the tail end of it but I also don't know would be try to find a way to scratch that itch without being able to do stand-up if you can do that via zoom shows or you know online shows I would say do that I don't necessarily like them but i'm lucky enough that i can wait for audiences to come back but i would also say you don't have to release everything you do i think we're in this weird age where everyone wants to show you how busy they are Mm -hmm. without actually concentrating on making something that's really good so you know before big j and i got the bonfire we were going to do it as a podcast and we did 10 episodes that we never released they're just 10 hours of Jay and I sitting in my living room trying stuff. You know, the first three hours were us sitting down and the energy was real low. And then I had music and then there was, we made an agreement to stand up during the entire time. And then that became like, we kind of shifted with the energy. And then by the time we were able to have the opportunity to do the bonfire on Sirius XM, we kind of already knew what it, what our dynamic was. And I think with the reason I'm saying this is like comedians, you can, you can go and talk like this. Like I could talk to my computer and then I could watch it and you could watch it and be like, oh, that's funny. Or you could do a podcast and just do 10 episodes by yourself or find a theme and, and work it out. It's like there's a lot to be said about working something out. For sure. And just that repetition. And like you yeah. talk about working something out for your special, your newest one. Like you not only worked out here in America, but then you went to like Ireland and then you went to like Scotland. Like you wanted to make sure this thing was airtight from every single angle to work it out. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that people who get sunburnt easily loved that hour. That was the whole point of that tour. It was just like, <laughs> let me go to the whitest, freckliest places on earth and work these jokes. No, I was op- I uh was really lucky to be able to do the Fringe Festival, which uh, unfortunately isn't happening this year because of COVID. But it was um, it was a, a great opportunity, like you said, for repetition. And it mm-hmm. felt, as someone that played high school football, I wasn't good at it, but I always loved football. It felt like going to a football camp where it was like, oh, I get to, I have part of the day to do Edinburgh stuff, walk around, get a coffee, hang out with Sean Patton. I was really lucky to live with him and uh, and Jeffrey Baldinger and um, Caitlin Cook. And it was like a good house to live in because it's uh, three other people doing shows, but also just three people that I I got to live with and, 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 and know better. But it was the best thing possible 
anyone that's doing an hour, whether it be an album or a special, I can't recommend doing the Fringe Festival more mm. because it's just you go through an entire process of learning, failing, rebuilding, leaving strong. Michelle Wolf told me while I was there, she's like, when you get back to America, you're going to feel like a fucking super like you have superpowers because you've just been doing it every night for an hour. And the first show I, I did back was like uh, was the Kevin Barnett benefit at Brooklyn Steel. And it just felt like, oh, I'll just they were like, do eight minutes. And I was like, cool, I have this chunk. And I just like took it out of the hour and was like, damn, this thing is tight. Like you don't realize how tight the bit is until you do it. And, you know, I, uh, unfairly, I was I was on, it was a benefit show with a stacked lineup, but it was people doing like, hey, what is this guy doing? You know, and I came in like tick, 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 and <laughs> yeah. had it all like this is fucking line into this line and, and, and knew when to let it breathe and shit. And um, that was all that was all Fringe Festival. So, yeah, I think with the last hour, it was all about repetition. And, and I we agreed to do the special in December of 2018. And then I filmed it October of 2019, telling HBO, like, hey, give me 10 months to go. I had the hour. I, I mean, I would probably say what came out on the special was 45% when I sold it, what they saw originally. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I had, you know, I have other bits that, that uh, hopefully work when I go back on the road. I don't know. I don't even know if I know how to do fucking jokes anymore. I've but it was. That too. <laughs> I've had dreams about it, man. I've been having dreams. Where I'm on stage and I don't know how to finish bits. Where I'm like, tack, 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 carpenters, huh? It's like, guy, guy could be Jesus, and then he's like non-union. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a thing where uh, I miss the repetition. I miss the, you know, I was I was watching my girlfriend play with our dog yesterday at like 6:45, and I told her this morning I was like, that's gonna be weird when I'm like at the bonfire at 6:45 and then I have to be like, "Oh, I got a 8:45 at the stand and a 9:35 at the cellar." And during this whole time it was like me living at home just being like, "What should we have for dinner tonight, mother?" <laughs> you know, it yeah, felt like exactly. a weird What, what um, <laughs> when it comes to actually generating material because that is something I think uh, comics are, even if we're writing right now, it's like, who knows when I'm going to get on stage? Who knows if I'm going to remember it? Who knows if I'm going to care yeah. back then? But something I heard, I've heard you say that really helped you is when you started trying to make yourself laugh instead of trying to make other people laugh. Could you kind of expand on that and maybe give advice for how comics can start to shift their mindset in that direction? God damn, dude, you're nailing it. I just got out of a therapy session where we talked about all of this and it was a thing of, you know, I, I, I have a desperate need to be liked. I think all comedians do. I think that's why we have to stand up on stage and ask for the affection of strangers. But I also think it comes in different shades. And I think some people like nagging an audience and, and, and pushing at them and being like, huh, fucking, but you still like me. Like, Shane Gillis is the best I've ever seen at that. Like mm-hmm. Shane Gillis is the best at being like, you guys are gay. And they're like, I love you. You know, but he's like doing it in like a, in like a, a warm older brother kind of way where he can like, he's giving you a, a noogie on your head. You know, he's like, come here, you piece of shit. And you're like, I love you. What do you want to talk about? And then there's guys like, you know, uh, big J has like this incredible 
just outside guy smoking a cigarette energy. You know, he has like a real like crazy what's going on, huh? And you're like, yeah. And then the next thing you know, you're explaining your ex-girlfriend's asshole to him. Yeah. And you're like, <laughs> exactly. How did I get into this? How did I get into this? And I think mine was like the way I was raised. I grew up really afraid of my mom because I think she was stressed out and just kind of, um, you know, I was a very fearful child. I was very, I was alone. I was the only child and I was, my mom was working all the time. So I was alone. And then when she would bring in was like fear of whether it be disappointment or you fucked up or you didn't do these right. So I think my first fucking 10 years of comedy was just me being like, Hey, hey, we're cool, right? <laughs> Everything's cool. And then the last five years has been an eventual uh, evolution of me trying to be like, oh, yeah, I'm my sense of humor is why I'm here. Like me, the jokes I make in my head, I've said them out loud enough and had I've paid enough taxes to know that that's a viable career. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is, like, am I doing it? Am I doing jokes that I would want to watch? And that's a real that's a real hard question because I don't like the HBO special. I think I put so much work into it. I was proud of it as a body of work and I was really proud. That's the most proud of anything I've ever done. That's like I almost get this like weird offense when people are like, hey, check out his Netflix half hour. I'm like, don't do that. That was a half baked piece of shit. That was me trying to recoup for putting out an hour on Comedy Central that didn't go the way I wanted it to. But this HBO special is really the first thing that I've watched you know, when I was editing it. I'd never watched it after I edited it, but where I watched it, I'm like, yeah, these bits are completed. Like, they're, they're completed. I, I And I, that's something I have to thank Fringe for. I, I went all the way through the bit, and when you go all the way through it, and it's like, I, a great book that people should read, if comedians should read, uh, that helps with comedy i think and i'm I'm about to reread it is uh how to win an argument by cicero hmm. it's this book that i found uh you know in a bookstore being a pretentious dickwad but i found this book and i was like oh this is I, he was a lawyer who had to not only represent his friends but his enemies and he's like one of the greatest arguers i don't even know if that's a word but he's like one of the greatest shit talkers of all time and he lays it out. It's a, it's a very short read, but it's it's something that in it, something in it uh, really. I read it before I did Fringe, and it, it made me. I kept thinking about this during the Fringe Festival, which is like, when you have an idea, cast a very wide net, so that when you pull it back, you've gone through everything. So when you have an idea, like cast the widest net possible to see what you can catch in it, and then when you pull it all back in, you'll have you'll know you went everywhere with the idea. So where you settle will be the best idea. I I think he says it better than that. And the idea might be a little different, but point being is like with a premise, I want to start working on like, I always loved watching guys like Kurt Metzger because Kurt Metzger was a guy where I'm like, man, that angle on that joke is unique and perfect in a way that, no one else is going to do that angle. Nate, Nate Bargetsy's unbelievable at that. Nate Bargetsy's unbelievable at finding those in things that are just as simple as like grape jelly. You know, if I say like grape jelly, like I've had several conversations on the phone with Nate where in conversation he said something, whether it be about buying a tiger or whether it being about having ketchup in your refrigerator. At the time it was grape jelly and he changed it to ketchup. 
But then I'll watch his stand-up and be like, my God, he's got four different angles on that that maybe we didn't have in the conversation, but that he's built into this that are just genius. It's just so funny. And I really love that about all my friends. You know, a guy like Vecchione who can do a, a Megabus bit where if I told you there's a Megabus bit, you'd be like, I don't know if I can listen to 15 minutes of that. But then you see Vecchione's and it's layered and it's nuanced and it's really funny. And I always, I, I always really love those kind of jokes. Well, this actually ties into our first question when we're talking about joke writing. Because, uh, I mean, you being able to tackle dark humor in the way you do and the topics you do is, I mean, inspiring to all of us comics and showing what's possible within comedy writing. And uh, Christian Williams, actually, uh, he actually messaged me this morning saying how excited he was about this. So he actually got here early oh, cool, and posted man. the first question. So Fuck yeah, dude. Thanks, Christian. So his question, he says, uh, crackle, crackle, Dan. Yeah, goddamn right. <laughs> says, how do you find ways to turn difficult personal matters into good comedy, like your joke and material about your dad? Ah, man. Well, that's like something that Jay and I have talked about on the bonfire before is like uh, styles of comedy where new comics try to be like a Doug Stanhope. And you're like, you can't be Doug Stanhope. Doug Stanhope is one of the greatest of all time and uh, built that naturally. Bill Hicks was Bill Hicks and that's it. Like you're not going to walk in and be one of these guys. It's like trying to, you know, I, I look at it as like fixing an engine and it's like, you got to learn how to build simpler engines before you get to a, a, a highly complex one. Like you, you can't just walk in and build a, you know, a six cylinder where you're like, I know exactly how this runs. You got to build a little fucking go-kart engine and then a, a dirt, you know, you got to learn as you build up. And I, I wish I could have started comedy with that joke about my dead dad, but it took me, you know, 15 years to find out, okay, what's the angle where it's, I can show everyone that I think the situation is funny because I'm noticing the people that get offended when I first started doing it were people that had no skin in the game. It was people that had both living parents and they were kind of like, Oh God, that's kind of sad. And you're like, well, why, why is it sad? Your parents not dead. My parents dead. Like I'm talking about my thing. And really, I just wanted to get to the, make fun of my dad for being a Jimmy Buffett fan. That was really like <laughs> that. Cause that was something where it was like, I didn't realize my dad was a hack alcoholic until the bonfire. And big J was like, dude, yeah. Like, Jimmy Buffett fans he's like that's funny and I was like it is really funny and he loved Jimmy Buffett and it's like sincere just like finding out that I was a bar kid and that's like a bad thing it's like I don't think point being is like with dark humor it goes back to what we were talking about earlier what you find funny about it and then it's it's like how you find something funny and how other people can come to it and understand that you find it funny so it's not a big deal I guess is my way of saying that like getting into dark humor is first off it's the genuine reaction i have to anything sad in my life is to immediately mock it immediately mock it um almost every time something bad has happened to me in my life i think i've gone to humor as just being like well this fucking sucks because <laughs> I, I don't i've never understood the people that that wail in it you know i, I you, there'll be time to there'll be time for the pain but some people react different and some people want to be sad and wail in it. And those people write songs and, and 
right plays. You know, I think comics are the ones that are like, man, fuck this shit. Mm-hmm. This fucking sucks. So is that where that bit started when you're like, well, I had to find out what was funny to me first. So were you like, oh, I, th- I think it's funny he was a Jimmy Buffett fan. Now let me yes. find all the different angles into it. Exactly. My my initial premise was like, uh, my dad was a Jimmy Buffett fan, and that's hilarious that he died of alcoholism. Like, my initial premise was like, my dad got what he wanted. Like, Jimmy Buffett fans want to drink themselves to death. My dad did it. So, like that's a good thing. Like I really like taking negative things and trying to do, uh, put them in a positive light in a funny way, not in a serious way where I'm like, this negative thing's pretty good in a, in a funny way where you're like, what if this was good? <laughs> like, what if this was a good thing? Like that would be, you know, really funny. I think because whenever I see stuff, whether it be from the past or something that's like completely wrong and in the wrong light, I always think that's the funniest where I'm like, how did they think this was a good take? Like they thought this was right. And I, I, I think with jokes, that's kind of what I, I like. That's how I like to find my angles is like, okay, well, what would be the flip side? How would I, how would I find this to be funny? Oh, so it's like, this is bad, but what if it wasn't? And you start to build from that. Yeah, man, I grew up with a, I grew up with a mom that was like, don't be a pussy. You know what I mean? Like, I grew up with a mom that was like, Are, you're hurt. Okay, fucking get up. I mean, this woman survived like two major car accidents, Guillaume Barre. Like, she was like, I don't give a fuck that you're sad. Now, granted, that royally <laughs> fucked me on a lot of uh, other issues in life. But as far as a comedian, it's like she put me on the wheel in Conan. <laughs> like, she was just uh. like, push. <laughs> The fucking wheel. And then by the time I got off it, I was like, I was sitting there. My mom is like, Daniel, what is best in life? I'm like, to make fun of everything that hurts, to turn it into punchlines, to destroy your enemies. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was like when my mom basically, like, she put me on the wheel, dude. <laughs> Only a comedian is like, all that emotional abuse ap- prepared me to be a great comic. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yo, man, there was a reason that they let uh, men fuck children in Sparta. Because it made them into good soldiers. <laughs> they were like, I love this man. He took care of me. It's like fucked up when you read like Spartan history because we glora we glorify like Sparta as like they were the greatest warriors. It's like, dude, they raped kids in order to fucking establish a connection. You're like it's fucked up. But it's also that to me is the kind of thing where I think that's funny. Mm-hmm. Where I'm like, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that we allowed such an atrocity for something that, like, oh, it's cool. There were such good warriors. It's like, you know how much dirt they did to get there? Yeah, but they yeah, had nice abs. <laughs> exactly, dude. If you're going to wear a cape, you're going to end up raping some kids. You know? That's just how it is. Shirtless cape. <sighs> All right. Let's, let's get the next one in here. See how we can segue off of raping kids. Yeah, here. yeah, yeah, dude. <laughs> let's go, let's come off Spartan butt rape and go into something fun. So uh, this comes from Chase Bonin here. He says it seems you and a lot of your friends are getting a lot of recognition, like Joe List, Mark Norman, Sean Patton. Are there any other Fuck comics yeah. you recommend we follow that are on your level but may have not had the exposure? And do you float ideas around with other comics when writing? Yeah, all the time, man. All the time. Mike Vecchione is one of the, I mean, he's my roommate and he's a guy who's been on here that I float. He, I, I'm I'm living with my girlfriend now and we're making the step towards both of us are going to split up. You know, uh, Vecchione and I have lived together for fucking eight or nine years and he was the go to 
he was the go-to of like, hey, has anyone done this bit? And then you're like, yeah, so-and-so has a bit that's kind of similar. And then you're like, all right, let me drop the premise. But, you know, Michelle Wolf and uh, Nate and Shane Gillis are probably the people I call the most with like, hey, does anyone do this? Or is like, is this funny? You just need that one. You just need that one sentence where you're like, hey, is this sentence funny? And then they're like, yeah. And then you you have to be like a little truffle pig and fucking dig into that sentence and be like, how deep how deep does this go? And I think uh, I'm very lucky because the people that I am friends with are some of the best in comedy, talent wise. Mm-hmm. I think they're I think it's all all my friends are top tier. And, uh, you know. Sean Patton would be the name that I would say check him out because I think he is criminally underrated. Agreed. I think he's criminally underrated. I think Chloe Hilliard is really fucking funny, and I think people should check her out. Um, I'm trying to think of who else is – you know, Norman and List, watching them blow up, those are guys I, I – oh, Dan St. Germain. Dan St. Germain's a guy where I'm like, he's so goddamn funny. I, like I watch like a minute of him, and I'm like, he's just – He's the beard and the hair, but it's more than that. It's it's the way that Dan was a guy where we came up together. When I would watch him, I would get jealous of those jokes. Like I remember I watched him at South by Southwest do this. Uh, he's like, there's Papa John's pizza, but there's never step Papa John's pizza. You know, <laughs> like it's like the pizza's not as good. And he's like, hey, man, I know we don't get along, but I love your mom. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> I fucking, it's just I remember watching that uh, and being like, dude, he's so goddamn funny. But there are there's like. There's a ton of comics out there, and and uh, I think that's this. This is a great time for comedy, even though it's shut down, because there's so many avenues where people can explore and learn about comedians. Great, yeah, a lot of good. Yeah, there's so much comedy right now, and I remember Dan St. Germain's one of those guys who like he's he's he writes on a lot of shows and things like that, right? Yeah. So it's like yeah, yeah. it's kind of like um. In Ian Edwards, who we've had on here, it's like he's right. super funny, but he's been in that writing world that can kind yeah. of conflict with getting that stand-up exposure. Absolutely. One of the funniest people I think that I've ever seen in my life, uh, Luke Cunningham, was a great stand-up comedian and got started writing and then w- walked away from stand-up. I, I, you know, I don't know uh, if it was a good or bad thing, but he was a guy where... I would watch him do stand up and then he'd be like, Yeah, I can't really do it that much. I gotta go right. And I'm like, God damn it, dude. Your stand up is so fucking funny. And yeah, it's just there's there's people like that. There's yeah. just people that that uh, you know, comedy is a business and and a part of this business is traveling. And if you're gonna do stand up, you have to be willing to be gone Thursday through Sunday most of your life living in a hotel room. But if you love comedy enough and, and you have a video game system and some decent weed, uh, you know, <laughs> not a bad weekend. <laughs> oh, you're a, a beacon of inspiration for all of us, Dan. <laughs> yeah, it's, smoke, <laughs> smoke weed, play video game. <laughs> and uh, the next one is from Lee Hudson, who's actually, uh, he's from across the pond, actually. So Yeah, I, I feel like I've met Lee before. Maybe that name yeah. sounds familiar. I don't know, man. Again, I smoke weed and play video games, so it could be <laughs> could could have been a fucking a created character or something. I don't know. But yeah, we yeah we have comics all over the world that tune into this. So um, he he asks, uh, what what is it like working with Chris Store to shoot your special? Oh man, he was great. 
Christor fucking nailed it. I, um, you know, I, I think I'm in this weird part of my life where I'm learning how to s- speak up for what I want uh, creatively, which I think is a weird time because it's kind of like, a, you know, I think in general, white guys need to do less public squawking and do more listening. But then like creatively, it's weird because it's like, oh, yeah, I've learned that if I don't say what I want, the thing that I'm going to make isn't going to be what I want. And that's a hard thing is to go through the process of making something and being like, I would have done it a little bit different. I, I loved the way that my hour special for comedy central, not special was filmed. Marcus LeBron, uh, I fucking fucking up his last name, Marcus. And, uh, the guys there did a great job shooting it. Chris Storer came in and I had to have a conversation with him where I was like, this is exactly what I want. I want, I want lo-fi, uh, no audience. I want an old. I want an old school feel to a stand-up special. Mm. I felt like everyone now was doing shiny and bright, and like big words and neon. And you're like, fucking, this is stand-up. Look how big this fucking stage is. Oh my god, you can't cover it in an hour. And I wanted to do something that was like, yeah, man, here's me in the pocket, just fucking firing jokes off. And here's an hour of like, I didn't want one moment of fat i wanted it cut i wanted it in there and i told chris i was like i want you to film it in a specific way and he said yes and i believed him and then when we did tech scout and all that shit and i showed up the day of the special and he showed me what the cameras look like i was like fucking a dude you did it Hmm. you did the exact thing i wanted you know and he was like and it's it's great to be like um to have surprises where they did a, they did a shot in the special where it was my back. So it's the spotlight and then my back and then the, you can barely see the audience around it. But I loved that shot and that wasn't something I asked for. That was just something that he did. And Chris is a guy that he understands what the fuck you're trying to get. And so he was really super easy to work with because it was a thing of like, oh man, you, you're hearing what I'm saying. And that makes me think this is going to come out the way it did. And then when I watched the first cut, watching a cut of a special is, is really fucking difficult because you can't, uh, I've learned when editing a special, listen to it first, then watch it. Mm. Because if you're trying to listen and watch, you're going to get lost in like hand movements and shit like that. And, um, I listened to the HBO special and I was like, yeah, that's, that's what I wanted. That's the hour. And then I watched it and I was so pleasantly surprised of like, oh shit, man, this guy fucking did it. This guy made this into the thing I wanted to. Well, let's take you off your high horse here and let's take you back to, uh, your worst bomb. This is kind of like a combo question. Uh, Matias Siegel and John Russo's. Both are asking bombing questions, um, yeah. but let's go with one is like, do you remember the first time you bombed, but maybe yep. like maybe your biggest bomb and how it felt? <laughs> well, first, just because I know off the top of my head, the first like real bad bomb that I had was at an open mic at Laughs in Tucson, and it was a three minute spot. And I went up there and I hadn't really gotten into writing out sets I kind of had ideas and was like, when I get up there, I'll just fall through the idea. Uh, also, Marcus Raboy. I just remembered his name, and I feel like a dick. 
good because you direct my. I remember going on stage. I remember exactly what I was wearing. I remember premises that went nowhere, and then I would bail and go to another premise that went nowhere. So it would be like, you guys, uh, you guys ever go to the grocery store and you like, you like, um, I, uh, I went on a date. I went on, I was trying to go on a date and this girl, and it was like that dude for, uh, it was a three minute set. It's the, one of the only times in my life I've ever bailed. It's one of my only times in my life I've ever bailed from the stage. And I got off at a minute and a half. And it was <laughs> it was fucking brutal, dude. I went to the back of that comedy club, and this is when you could still smoke cigarettes inside. And I smoked a half a pack of cigarettes with my head in between my legs. Like, I was just, like, smoking, just like, oh, my God, that sucked so fucking bad. And then probably the biggest bomb that I've had is, I don't know, man, they've, they've all... I've bombed a lot at the uh, at Caroline's. I've had a couple hot ones. Um, <laughs> a couple hot ones. <laughs> yeah, dude. I took I took two tough ones back to back on uh, New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve is a rough night for stand up. Everyone, every comic knows that. Uh, when you do Caroline's um, New Year's Eve, you're in Times Square, and part of the sell of the ticket to the comedy show because it's not a major headliner. It's like Caroline's used to do it where it's like five really good uh, New York stand-up comics. So you get like five like up-and-coming guys or girls or whoever, and you would you would do the shows. And then the appeal was at 11.45 or 11.50, you go upstairs and you get to watch the ball drop, and then you get to go right back inside and have drinks and celebrate the new year. I did it, the first time I did it, I was drinking, and it was like, I was like second on the show, and it was fun, and I was like fucking hammered, it was, Joe DeRosa was on the shows with me, and we were fucking drinking, and smoking cigarettes, and in the green room, and it was just a fucking party. Second time I did it, I had my girlfriend with me, I was sober for a year, and it was New Year's Eve, and they had me go last on both shows. First show, they're, they they just fucking, they don't care. They're just there to do it. I, I, I use the bit every New Year's, but it's still true. And it, it was birthed from that where I was like, how the fuck are y'all judging me when you're wearing plastic top hats? You're like wearing a fake fancy thing and you're, you think I'm not funny? Fuck you. That was like my first reaction. The second show was to this day, I can remember the feeling of that bomb of like, Usually when you're bombing, you can get a joke and it's like, oh, there we go. I'm up. I'm up. I'm up out of it. This one was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. It was like falling downstairs. Where I was like, that joke didn't work. That joke didn't work. And then I start getting peanut butter mouth and I start sweating. And then I'm like, that joke didn't work. That joke didn't work. And then I get to the end. I'm doing 15 minutes. It's only a 15 minute bomb. And by fucking minute 12, I can... Losing the audience hurts more than anything. When you've completely lost the audience and they start talking to themselves, because then it's a subconscious effort from the audience to be like, I don't want to listen to this fucking idiot anymore. I'd rather talk to you. And so I remember losing them. And then I remember all of them starting to look at their watch and being like, it's 11.50. It's 11.50. They're like, look at their phones and be like, it's 11.50. We got to get, and then like people started to get up 
and walk to go. Oh, dude. <laughs> finishing a, finishing your closing bit while half the room is leaving is one of the most humbling experiences anyone can go through when you're like, and then I say to him, because you have like that line locked up, you know, right. like, I go over there and I look at him and I say, that's not a parachute. And people are just walking out and like, thank you, everyone. Good night. Just. <laughs> Fuck, and then you got to walk up stairs and celebrate New Year's with these people uh, that just watched you fail. Uh, Fuck that! That really that one that was the one that was probably one of the worst bombs. Because I remember my girlfriend being like, she was very like you know one of those girls that's like, baby, it's New Year's, and I was kind of like, oh god damn it, that was like grating on me because I was like, you just watched me eat shit. How are you this happy? How are you not like, hey, dude, do you need a cigarette? <laughs> like, how are you not like, you want to sit down? If, if I were my girlfriend in that time when I bombed, I would have had an ice pack for the back of my neck. Mm-hmm. Like, like at the end of a New Japan pro wrestling match, like where they just <laughs> put ice on them. Like, you took a lot of bumps in there and you're like, I know, I know, fucking hurt. How are you, how are you able to? I feel like I've been doing comedy 10 years now and like I'm getting better at bouncing back from bombs, but I mean, you know, they still, yeah. they still suck. Like no. how have you, how have you been able to kind of alleviate the repercussions of a bomb and kind of make it less uh, like daunting? I don't know, man. I think another set is the only cure. Yeah. It's the only cure for a bomb. Yeah. It's the only thing that can pull you out is like a good set. Because then you're like, okay, so I don't, so those people were wrong. Because that's what you walk away from. You're like, was I wrong? Am I wrong to be in this? And then, and then you, and then you have a good set and you're like, oh, no, 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 never mind. They were wrong. Fuck them. <laughs> These guys are right. This audience right. gets it. Those other fucking dolts didn't understand what I was saying. Yeah. So it's, there, there is no way. And I think honestly, it is, uh, bombing is the soreness in comedic exercise it's like if if you if if you're really sore then you need to work out more you need to be up there more mm-hmm. and it's like there it's always going to there's going to be a soreness with it because you're like man i've i've had mornings where i've woken up and i've been like god damn it that last show like i'll do three shows at the stand in the first two i'll be like <laughs> Looks like I found what I was born on this earth to do. And then the third show, I'll be like, hey, uh, should I uh, kill myself by eating my own shit? Because <laughs> that last crowd couldn't have cared less. Well, it's good. We're not alone in that feeling. Nah, man, bomb, but it's also a necessity. It's yes. like, uh, you know, it's just a, it's a part of the process. I'm, g- I'm going to, dude, coming back, I'm in St. Louis, June 25th through the 27th. That first show, there are going to be some misses. <laughs> there are going to be some. I don't. It might not even be the first show. It might be like Friday late show where I'm like, "What the fuck am I doing on stage?" Well, let's let's uh, get to uh, Leo here because this is a good one from the perspective of even like taking your comment to the next level. He asks uh, Leo Kanapka. He's asking, is there more benefit from starting my own mics in Baltimore, like starting shows, or should he move to like one of the big hubs? He's like, he's starting shows, he's hosting, he's the door guy to place, but what's... Move to a a big place. Move to Um, a big place, okay. My advice for anyone would be get a year or two under your belt to kind of understand how comedy feels in whatever city you start in or whatever city you live in. 
spend about a year learning the, you know, low stakes, man. Go do open mics that that are stressful as fuck to you. But when you look back 15 years later, you're gonna be like, oh, that wasn't shit. So go do those. Like it's, you know, at the beginning of every video game where you have the really first easy level and it's just kind of there to teach you the controls of the game. That's what your local scene is. Go do that level and run run through it once or twice and then move the difficulty to hard and move to a hub, uh, move to New York or L.A. or Chicago or a city where you're going to be around people that scare you and make you feel wrong that you're doing this. But also there's a weird inspiration of like, I'll catch up to you guys. I'll I'll, I'll make it. I'll, I'll get to where you guys are at, because that's something that I couldn't have you know, just pure idiot luck going from Tucson where it's two years of, uh, you know, I had laughs, which was a real club, but then there was casinos where I was just bombing all the time, opening for people in casinos to small weird shows that weren't really around, I think around much more now, but then moving to New York at still a beginner's level where I, you know, I, I know a lot of guys that are headliners that moved to New York and they're like, I'm not getting spots. And it's like, yeah, because you were up here in your city and now you're down here in this city. So if you're rising up in your city, it's easier to come down a little to go back up, you know, like take a step back to go take five steps back to go fucking a million steps forward. And I think mm. it's really daunting to move to a big city, but be comfortable with the I was comfortable with the idea of like, I'm going to be a waiter for however long it takes for me to get to become a stand-up comedian and then the uncomfortable part of that wasn't the beginning it was when i was starting to get sets and when i was starting to get you know i got on live at gotham on comedy central and i was like starting to open for like bobby kelly and and other people like that and it was like oh i don't want to be a waiter anymore i just want to be a comedian but that was the difficult part because you're like but I could see the light. I could be like, I'm getting stuff. And there was really depressing mornings where I was going in and setting up a cafe at a Mexican restaurant and being like, dude, I fucking killed it last night at Stand Up New York. And now I'm going to be, the, you know, these people's fucking iced tea bitch for the next <laughs> seven hours. And it's like, fuck this, man. Fuck this. Like Colin Quinn said, you, I had a good set. And now I got to listen to a stockbroker tell me that the margarita tastes weird. It's like, fuck you. It tastes weird. You ordered the wrong tequila. So it was like a thing. That's my advice for moving to a big city. As far as starting a shows, I don't recommend starting shows because I've seen a lot of good comedians get trapped into spot trading mm. where they're good. They're good enough to be on a show, but because they have their show, whoever runs the show that they were going to be on now wants to be on their show. So now you don't know, am I being booked because I'm funny or am I being booked because I have something to give this comedian? And I think that's a dangerous spot to be in. And you moved to New York being at like the Mecca. And when we had Nate on here, he talked about coming up in New York and he had like funny, yeah. like Patrice O'Neill and like Bill Burr's story. Um, do you have any just unforgettable story being around like a comedian, like one of those two that you just never forget? Man, I can't describe to you uh, the feeling of like growing up. And I know a lot of comics will immediately feel this, but it's like, Growing up such a big comedy fan and like loving stand-up comedy enough that you want to get into it and then you start it's seeing people come off the TV screen 
It's like people crawling out of the TV. The first time I saw Chris Rock walk into Stand Up New York to do a spot, I was like, oh, my God, that's for, that's it's like seeing one of the gods. Mm-hmm. You're just seeing one of the gods walk by you. And my like my holy shit moment, my first holy shit moment of like, man, I'm in New York and I'm doing stand up was I'm obsessed with the movie Comedian. Um I'll probably watch it again this weekend just because I brought it up. But the documentary is my favorite thing. And I don't even think Jerry's not my favorite part of the documentary. It's Colin Quinn. And the way Colin talks about comedy is something that I've always romanticized. And and I think he's one of the greatest of all time. Um, And I became friends with Joe List. And we he was like, let's go to the cellar and have some beers. And I was like, yeah, all right. And I, I was nervous as fuck. And we went into the cellar and. Never went around the table. I just sat at the bar. Joe List and I were drinking. Uh, we had we each had our own pitcher of beer. <laughs> I remember that clearly. Oh, we were yeah. both alcoholics. Yep. So we each had our own pitcher of beer. And Colin was fat. <laughs> Colin was like <laughs> overweight. And Colin was wearing a red hoodie and like a red sweatpants or whatever. And he comes over and he puts his arm around both of us at the bar. And he goes, do you guys see that bomb? And Joe List is like, no, I didn't. I, we were up here. And he goes, I don't know what it is about athletic wear, but you always wear it when you're the least in shape. And he was just like being Colin <laughs> Quinn. And I'm just like dumbstruck. I'm just like sitting there like, oh, this is great. And then Joe List goes, Colin, this is my friend uh, Dan Soder. He just moved here from Colorado to be a comedian. And Colin goes, what's your last name? I go, Soder. He goes, ugh, change it. And then he walked away. <laughs> And I just remember being like, man, Colin Quinn just ugh'd me, which growing up listening to Opie and Anthony and being a big fan of Patrice and Burr and, and Colin and those guys and Jim Norton, it was like, oh, man, like becoming being able to text Jim Norton to me is fucking insane. It's fucking insane to be like, oh, if I need to reach out, I can just text Jim Norton. Just like, hey, Bobby Kelly being like an older brother to me when the quarantine first started. Uh, my girlfriend and I were re-watching The Wire, and um, we got bored one night, and she was like, yeah, I'm going to read. I don't want to watch TV, and I went and watched Tourgasm. I like went and watched it because I remember when it came out, and now it's so weird to know Bobby as well as I know him and to see that. And you're like, I remember when that came out, and like, you know, Goldman and Bobby were like yeah. these guys that you just didn't walk up and talk to them. And now I can like call Bobby, and Bobby will be like, why don't you fucking call me early? It did. So rewarding. So yeah. It's also, in the same sense, it's been fucking awesome watching my friends become big. Like, it's been great watching Nate go into theaters and become, like, one of the best working stand-up comedians. It's been great watching Michelle Wolf just become this undeniable beast of a comedian, you know, and just being like, oh, man, all my friends, like, are really good. Michael Che, like, watching him become, like, even bigger, like we were t- we started the show talking about that show, but the fact that Che can just, without really a lot of social media, just put it out there like, yo, man, I want to do a show. And then like thousand people show up outside. It's like, man, that's so great. And just knowing that how funny he is and how funny Michelle and Nate are, it's just cool watching it start to pay off. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time here, Dan. This has been great. Um... Yeah, man. I, uh, I love talking comedy, so I really appreciate you having me on. Of, oh, of course. Yeah, and all of those people you named, they are more than likely and open to coming on this show. Please, if you want to text Jim Norton right now or you want to call Michelle <laughs> yeah, Wolf, that, 
I don't know. know if I have that warm of a relationship <laughs> with Jim where I'd be like, you want to do this podcast? And he'd be like, fuck, even Wolf, who's one of my best friends, I would be like, you want to do this podcast? And he'd be like, how do you know him? What do you owe him? <laughs> <He'd be> like, <laughs> what do you owe him? Does, did he know you when yeah. you were a drunk? <laughs> yeah. Do you, did, he, did you say the wrong thing around him? And you're like, I don't know. I don't fucking know, Michelle. <laughs> oh, it's hilarious. Yeah, all those people are definitely like um, we're trying to do something positive, you know, for we're trying to make comedy more accessible, but also sure. creating more like respect around the craft and getting to interview people like you. I think comedians learn a lot, but I think comedy fans also create a new appreciation for just what goes into not only the art, but the lifestyle. Like you said, you've really got to want it. And a lot of people don't understand that. And doing interviews like this, I think help people to create more appreciation around comedy. Ah, dude. Well, I, uh, I appreciate you having interviews like that because comedy is something that I, I fucking love and it's something that I've greatly missed and it's something that I'm glad is slowly starting to return. And, um, yeah, comedians are the best people on earth. I think they're, I, agree. Uh, <laughs> I think they're incredibly, they're powerfully, powerfully fragile and, uh, wonderfully broken. And I think that's like, the the best way to put it mm. is like powerfully powerfully fragile and wonderfully broken. It's like I all my friends are man. If I worked at an office with them, I'd have a real problem with them. But uh, being comedians with them makes me love them more than anyone on earth. And we always like to end this show like with your closing advice for comics, whether it's a favorite tip you've picked up along the journey or just something you've learned along your way. Do you have any like closing advice or? insight for comedians out there yeah understand this is specifically for comedians is uh understand that the the people that work at those comedy clubs might not be the biggest comedy fans but they're the most important because just as easily as without us they're just a room with tables and booze without them we're just crazy people yelling under a bridge so be decent to every venue manager, even if they're a dick, just be decent to them unless they're like fucking, you know, like sexist or trying to rape you or being racist or some shit like then fuck them. But I'm saying know that like most of the servers there, this wasn't their first option to work at a, a fucking funny bone. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's some people that are, but there's a lot of people that are like. I got hired at the funny bone. I'm, I'm kind of a fan of stand up. Be cool to them because you might make their shitty Friday night better. If you're a little nice to them and then they find you funny, then they're not waiting tables. They're listening to you headline twice. And I always like that. I always like when waiters are like, dude, thanks. Uh, thanks for this weekend. It was like fun to work during this weekend. And you're like, ah, fuck yes, man. That's it. That's all we are. It's just the fucking lube. So just, you know, lube them up, baby. Yeah, be nice. Tip them as well. Don't forget to tip them. Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. Tip them. Take care of them. Yes. And they'll take care of you. They're co-workers. Like, you're all co-workers. A lot of people overlook that, but you're all a co-worker yeah. at this establishment. Tr be a good co-worker to them. That's probably the most succinct way I, I could uh, uh, that can be said. You, you work with these people. Mm. Be, be decent. Be decent to be around. You're you're not that more you're not that much more special than them. Just a couple of things broke right for you, and that's why you're on that side of it. So, is there anything you want to promote, or how can people follow you? Want to um, with that? 
I got. Uh, I just found out. We haven't made the official announcement, but we're going to put out the HBO special "Son of a Gary" as an album uh, in a couple weeks. So if you haven't uh, heard it, be on the lookout for that. That hour is coming out. There's also the full hour of "Not Special" is on YouTube. Um, you can go watch that, and also listen to the Bonfire Monday through Thursday, six to eight p.m. Eastern on Comedy Central Radio, Sirius XM. It's a lot of fun. And if you can't pay for the subscription, get it elsewhere. You know what I mean? <laughs> get it elsewhere. Awesome. Well, Hot Breath of Verse, Dan Soder. Give it give it up for Dan Soder here. Wow. Oh, listen to that. That was that's incredible. The, that's the first clap I've gotten in months, man. That felt good. <laughs> All right, Hot Breath of Verse. Go forth with your days. Go join our Facebook group to get involved in more of these Q&As. And we will see you next time on Hot Breath. <sighs> Hot Breath. This episode of Hot Breath is sponsored by our Patreon. If any of our content has helped your comedy career, join our Patreon linked in the show notes and get positive comedy karma for life. Probably.